What's up, Ned? Hey. Welcome to Good Titrations. Thank you. How you doing, Brandon man? Emmett? I am very happy to be here. It's been a long time. I know I've been hounding you for a while, and I dropped off. Busy man, huh? I'm, I'm pretty busy. I actually meant to get back to you sooner. I, you know, I was thinking about it. I was like, man, I'm really, really bummed out. I haven't been on that show yet, but uh, here we are. Welcome to Faller North Tokers. This is episode 123, January 27th, with your host, Mid Toker. Thank you all for listening. Very exciting show. Many more people are listening than all this time, not because of me, but because of the guest, Brandon Emmett. You are going to find out why he is where he is today. Deep, rich history with this man. And as we all know, he was let go by Governor Dunleavy last week being replaced with a prohibitionist. We're not going to let that happen. No worries. Keep focused. Just relax. Sit back and listen to the beginning of a legend. Do you know the story of Cincinnatus? He was a Roman general. Retired. Went back to his farm. Did his plow. The lands were being invaded. He was needed for his country. Gave up his lands. The opportunity to work on his farm. To go and help for a higher calling, safety for the country. When it was done, he went back to farming, back to a previous life. George Washington, it's called the Cincinnatus of American history. Today, I shall dub Brandon Emmett, Cincinnatus of the Alaskan cannabis industry. Thank you, sir. Part one with Brandon Emmett. Become a patron of Far North Tokers at patreon.com slash midtoker. Listeners supporting the artist for as little as $2 a month. Patreon helps continue new weekly shows. And now your patronage comes with extra benefits from our sponsors. Chena Cannabis, The North Bowl Refinery, Dab Lab AK, and Moving Free Farms. Thank you to our newest patrons, D.B. Copeland and Barry Dabber. Sarah Grover, Josiah Lockery, Bertie Walter, and Rhonda Howard, and longtime patrons Marilyn Berglund, Carrie Mullis, Aaron Worthen, Peggy Peters, and Ramlin Ranger. Here's Token Far North Token. Where does cannabis start for Brandon? When I was probably about 12, I realized that some of the cigarettes that my mom and dad smoked weren't tobacco cigarettes you know um you know we're a pretty earthy family and how did, how did you realize that we're in school being taught dare like how old are you i am 36 it was after you're after dare right did you get dare? i was i was right at the tail end of dare i've always lived in rural communities and and so they you know are generally a few years behind urban centers mm-hmm. and so as a kid growing up in lake havasu city arizona or outside of Lake Havasu City, Arizona, I should say. Um, yeah, they had the D.A.R.E. program. And they they taught us that drugs are bad. Marijuana is the devil. They were talking about crack and heroin, all that stuff. I didn't know what any of that stuff was. They started talking about marijuana. And I was like, oh, it looks like tobacco, you know. And then they're, they're talking about it more and more. And I, I kind of put two and together. It's like, her girlfriend's friends drink beer. You know, they smoke these funny cigarettes. And my, my mom doesn't drink, but she always used cannabis. And I put two and two together. I was like, this is the stuff that they say is all crazy, you know? And one day... Was this in the classroom? 
that you realized this through, through the D.A.R.E. program or is this just... It like, was, yeah, it was one day, I remember I was on the school ground and and the uh, it was a really hot, sunny day and we just got done running around and the D.A.R.E. officer showed up and was talking about all this stuff and they and the D.A.R.E. officer was really forward and said, hey, if your parents have any of this stuff, you need to come tell me because it's, it's bad. I want to I help them. And uh, As a kid, you want to help your parents too? And I was like, you know, like... That, that's weird. You know, that's really weird. Why is this, this stranger saying, oh, you know, all this stuff is really, really bad, but if your parents do it, they need to, need to tell us about it. And that just seemed fishy to me. So I went home, and um, I walked in on my mom smoking a joint, and I kind of surprised her, because um, she usually, you know, um, would only do it in, like, social settings and stuff that I saw. Um, but it was just her sitting in her room, and I walked in, she was smoking a J, and I st- was staring at it and she she knew that I knew it's time. and she's like so she puts out the J she's like um, alright let's uh, let's let's go out on the porch and have a talk you know I tell her about the D.A.R.E. program and the D.A.R.E. officer and all this stuff and then so she she tells me about you know cannabis like okay these cigarettes that I've been smoking these are cannabis cigarettes did she tell you they were tobacco early or you just assumed they were oh I just because it was like it was never like hidden from me. So I, mm-hmm. I grew up in a, in a family where the adults talk to the children like adults. So no baby talk or, you know, whatever. And, and they, you know, my mom obviously didn't expose me to a lot, like a ton of adult content, but as you're ready. Yeah, exactly. But you know, in having a very, you know, social lifestyle, like when her and her friends drank beer and smoked weed at parties and stuff like that, all the kids are running around, you know, like, they didn't hide it from us. You know, they told us, like, hey, if we go to try to drink their beer, oh, no, you can't have this. It's bad for you until you're an adult. And, mm-hmm. and so she gave me the whole, the same spiel that I had learned about alcohol when I was really young, that it's okay for adults to do it, but not kids because it can hurt your developing brain. It's, it's not like a do as I say, not as I do. It's just, as soon as you're old enough for this stuff, it's cool. But tobacco, alcohol, and now marijuana you really got to stay away from this stuff until you're you're old enough. You know, it sounds so like how long? Well, I was a teen. You know, I became a teenager pretty yeah. soon after that. You know, yeah, I think I was probably fourteen or fifteen. One of the guys on my my track team, he had some, and and we tried it. What was his uh, sport? He was a sprinter. Hmm, he's really good. I was a sprinter as, as well. We we had a really competitive track team when I was little. I I, I lived, breathed, ate in Arizona track when I lived in Arizona. Oh yeah, we competed in the Jesse Owens track meet every year. Our we were the small school state champions. We were we were good. Being a white guy, being a sprinter. Yeah, I uh, I was a really competitive sprinter up until we all started to hit puberty. Oh okay, and then I I switched to to like. Mid distance and long distance. I just wasn't as fast as some of those other guys. You know, I was still really competitive. But uh, one of the sprinters on our on our team, he's like, "Yeah, you know, check check this stuff out." You know, I I stole it from my dad or my uncle or something like that. You knew what it was, and I knew what it was, and it was funny because it was like stems and seeds. Did you know it was stems and seeds then? No, I didn't. I didn't know exactly no stems and seeds. Like, so I tried it, you know, and uh, I was like, "Oh, this, in is, pipe this is pretty cool." What was it through? Pipe? Joint? It was it was a joint, yeah. It was oh, a so joint. Stems, it was like stems and seeds popping. Yeah. Oh yeah, you know. And I and I went to to my mom and I and I told her. Wow, you know, right afterwards or Oh yeah. 
So were you high at that point or whatever you were under the influence? I was stoned, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, hey, mom. So I tried weed and she's like, damn it, you're not supposed to smoke that stuff. But if you're going to, you, you need to know everything. And I was pretty rebellious. My mom was single mom and I kind of did what I wanted to do a lot of the time. And so she, she tried to keep a, a lid on my cannabis use without being hypocritical and without pushing me away, you know, and her, her parenting style was always, well, if you're going to get into trouble, I'd rather know what you're doing, you know? And so my mom, you know, and we always had like slumber parties and stuff. And so my mom really made an effort to really be involved at my school and also to say, I'm going to host all these teenage boys all the time. Uh-huh. And she's like, if you shitheads are going to be getting into trouble again, I don't, you know, I don't condone your cannabis use, but if you're going to do it no matter what, I don't want you out roaming the streets. Was you know? it your whole uh, track team or was it like overflow with different? different it was, it was, uh, yeah, I just realized like all, all these teenagers, they drank and they smoked weed and stuff like that. And so it was alcohol and cannabis at your, at your place, at your mom's place. Or was she saying only cannabis here or? So we, if we we got in trouble if we were if we drank, yeah. But you guys were because you're a teenager. Yeah, exactly. And so and, and again, it's like it was it was odd. I mean, it was a long time ago. From what I remember, she she tried to just give us a safe environment. You know, like we'll she wouldn't she wouldn't give us weed. You know, we weren't allowed to drink. You steal but her. she was really good at hiding it. Actually, you know, no, I didn't ever steal <laughs> oh, her wow. weed. Um, I never I never knew where she. She kept it, and she didn't smoke a ton, so I don't think she had a lot, you know. Uh-huh. And, and I and I was, I was very respectful of my mom, you know. My mom and I are still like best friends to this day. I never like rude through my mom's stuff, or and sure. and she let me have my own personal space too, um, which was really. So when cool. you're given it, it's it's easier to give to other people too. Yeah, and so and so yeah, she just like had you know the all the teenage boys over at the house on the weekends, and we'd all go on trips and stuff together you guys and stuff. Broke a lot of stuff, huh? We broke a lot of stuff. We broke each other a lot. You know, mm-hmm. a lot, some of us were into like martial arts stuff. I like got into wrestling when I was in high school. The whole wrestling team smoked it, other than like a, a couple of the real straight edge guys. And and I started to is um, that a is that a standard thing with a lot of wrestlers? It is. Yeah, just to calm them down. Contact. Yeah, it's, cannabis is really really popular amongst guys who play <laughs> contact sports or really intense sports where you suffer a lot of injury cannabis is extremely popular with the wrestling and mma community it's extremely popular in the rugby community nfl football you've probably heard about that on the news you know there's always something about the nfl players asking for the right to to use cannabis instead of opioids and then uh basketball Hmm. even though basketball is not a contact sport it's a super intense sport you're doing a lot of sprinting just being um, in that zone constantly. Exactly. And, you you know, you're getting a lot of injuries and stuff. And then, like, almost all the ex-gamers all right. smoke weed, too. It's, it's crazy. There's, there's is a really high percentage of athletes that use cannabis. Because, one, it doesn't, doesn't give you hangover. And, two, it alleviates aches and pains and stuff like that. It's, it's not highly addictive. And so... No calories. Exactly. No calories. And so, like, I became a stoner. In high school, and I still, you know, I, I, my main focus was sports. I was an all right student. I had a really healthy social life. I I played a lot of sports, and uh, I was at a job, and I, I smoked weed. And so, so that 
that is kind of the buildup to my like dive into the cannabis industry. So we moved to a new town. We moved away from Arizona and we moved to Eugene, Oregon. That's a little agricultural town outside of Eugene, Oregon. So again, not actually living in the city. And I was like, I was the new kid and uh, didn't quite. I was 15. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I was freshman in high school. I was a new kid. Um, and I didn't quite fit in, you know, being, you know, this from Arizona, like being from like the track volleyball community there, you know, and, and everyone was like a, a hippie or a farmer, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, well, man, you know, I got to find a way to, to fit in. And, um, so I joined the wrestling team and I needed a job. Right. So I was like, all right, I need a job. And I was asking, you know, the farm kids like, Hey, you know, uh, do you know where I can get a job? And they're like, Oh, you like to work? I was like, yeah, I've always, always had a job. You know, I, I worked as a, a, a ranch hand or a farm hand, um, for as long as I can remember when I was a kid, <clears throat> this kid that I met, he's like, yeah, I know, a, I know a guy who will who'll give you a job. And he's like, he's, he's coming here after school today to, uh, to, to pick us up. He's always working, looking for laborers. Right. I was like, all right, cool. And, uh, so he's like, yeah, be, you know, five minutes after, uh, after school gets out, be at the, uh, parking lot. And so I get there and again, I got to kind of do whatever I want. It was before cell phones, you know, so as long as I came home at night, my mom didn't really care. Um, so I was like, all right, so I'm going to go get this job. And so I show up in the parking lot and there's a couple hippie kids, a couple farm kids. And there's this, this mountain of a man standing next to a big work truck and I'd never seen anyone like him before. I mean, he was a beast, just like really like physically impressive. And he had he had just these amazing, massive golden dreadlocks coming down everywhere. Was he wearing overalls? No, he was wearing um, he was wearing like uh, hemp clothing, you know, like uh, a really loose, like flowing V-neck uh, shirt with like really like coarse threads mm-hmm. and pants that were similar. They're like car hearts, but he made an impression. lighter. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> and he had like jewelry, you know, like big beads and stuff. And I was like, what's this guy? And he comes up, he's like, Oh, I'm Dan. Like, nice to meet you. You know? And he was, you know, it's probably maybe old enough to be my dad, barely. And I was like, Oh yeah, nice to meet you, sir. He's like, he's like, Oh, you're looking for work. I was like, yep. Yeah. He's like, Oh, looks like you met my son. Dude didn't tell me that it was his dad that we were going to mm-hmm. meet, you know. And JD kind of gives me this little smirk. And uh, he's like, oh, are you familiar with farm work? He's like, you're not going to, this ain't, you know, pushing a broom at 7-Eleven. I was like, I've been a ranch hand my whole life, sir. And I'm like, what the fuck kind of ranch is this going to be, you know? And so we drive way up into the hills and we get to this gorgeous commune. Have you smoked pot with the, with the sun yet? Not yet. No. Okay. No, we didn't, we didn't actually get along all that well. But his dad is always looking for workers. And I was the new kid there, and he's kind of, you know, kind of a stoic. We're, we're friends now. Like, we've been buddies ever since I talked to him, you know, probably once a year or something. So we show up, and it's this organic farm slash commune, right? There's naked people walking around. There's more people wearing the weird hemp clothing. Um, were you keeping your eyes on your head all right, being 15? There were some pretty good-looking chicks there. I was kind of blown away. Yeah, some, some grown women not wearing any clothes, and and everyone there was healthy. People think of the stereotypical hippie these days as being someone who's just kind of grungy and dirty and in poor health. No, everyone there looked fit, wearing the strangest clothing. They were either dressed like that, like Dan, or not wearing anything at all. And there was this welder 
off in one corner of the property, and he was welded on this massive deal dragon. And uh, and then there were people, there were people harvesting hay with a sickle. I was like, this place is crazy. And then a handful of younger guys that were all like digging, like digging ditches and turning compost piles and stuff. And he's like, all right, you're going to turn the compost piles. Composts? Like, is that like manure? He's like, uh, it's uh, it's just, you know, plants and food products and stuff. And I was like, man, I've shoveled tons of manure. This will be easy. And uh, man, this guy worked my ass off. And I, I loved it, you know, because I was used to being a ranch and I was like, all right, I can, I can get into this little hippie farm kind of thing. And so I worked there for about a year and it turned out JD was the guy in our school that had weed. And so I got my, got my weed from uh, my buddy who we became friends. And did you ever see cannabis being grown out there? I did, but not for the first year. Right? Year and five. And people were pretty low key about their <laughs> cannabis use too. You know, a lot of people that that, uh, that lived on the commune didn't actually use any drugs or alcohol. They were like real mm-hmm. kind of zen, you know. But a lot of people did. And then I was like, wonder why the fifteen year old kid is the one who's always got the weed. You know, it's like where the hell is he getting this shit? And so after I worked there for about a year, Dan approaches me and he's like, "All right, you know, you uh, you done a really good job turning compost. That's all I did is turn compost, dig irrigation ditches because everything was." like natural farming and stuff like that. You know, so when the rains would come, the ditches would get all messed up. We'd have to dig them out again. We'll, we'll show you what we're doing here. And uh, so you talk to my mom, ask my mom if it was cool, if I participate in the cannabis industry. At 16 now? Yep, at 16. And uh, she's like, yeah, you know, I mean, that's you've been giving them a job, feeding them. I stayed out there for like a whole summer. Uh, yeah, he's he's yours basically. He's he's definitely not going to call the cops on you. And it was like medical then, but just like it'll only been medical for like two years. This was like ninety. It got legalized in ninety six or ninety eight or ninety. I think ninety six, and this was ninety eight. Anyways, it had just gone medical, and so everything was like gray market. So what he was was doing wasn't like illegal anymore, but it wasn't fully like a fully regulated system. And so they put me in the trimming room. And I'm trimming. And for the first day, it was cool. It's like, oh, man, I get all this keef. I get to keep the keef from what I trim, you know. And then after that, I was like, this is absolutely horrible. There's no it's way I can boring. smoke this much keef. Oh. Super boring. And uh, I asked to go back to the compost pile. I was like, you know, I, I like Just one day? It was one day. And I was over it. I was like, this is hard, you know. And it's like not my style. And uh, he's like, oh, okay. He's like, well, uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you doing something else, you know. And so um, I got to uh, – I'm still doing compost. We, he taught me how to make the compost teas and stuff like that. I how learned what they were ago? using. The, yeah, I, I learned what they were using this compost for. They were taking it and putting it in big burlap sacks um, or big hemp sacks and then putting it in 50-gallon uh, barrels of rainwater and, and then capping them and letting it steep in there and ferment. And then they'd come over with the tractor – and pull, you know, it weighed a few hundred pounds, pull the, the wet bag out there and let it hang and, and drip. And it was just this epic fermented compost tea. And they used that on their organic cannabis. And so I was still, still, I got to be kind of like the lead of the whole compost tea crew, which was really cool, you know. And, and so I still did a lot of physical labor. I got to drive the tractor and help teach the new guys how to turn compost and water the plants and this kind of stuff. And it was interesting. They didn't use any, you know, pH meters or or anything like that. It was basically just natural soil 
and compost tea and kind of a, a subjective, oh, it looks like the plant's got enough. It doesn't look like, you know, I wasn't in charge of any of that, but Dan had a really good handle on this Just organic an farming. Yeah. Um, no pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, nothing. You know, there were, you know, some bugs came in or something. He'd, he'd you know, bring in a truckload of like ladybugs or something. And from then on, I, I was a member of the cannabis industry and one form or another. Hey, good doers of Alaska. Tom with Good Cannabis. Just wanted to give you a quick update of all of our sales for the week Sunday, January 27th through Sunday, February 3rd. Sunday, January 27th, $35 for all good gummies. Monday, January 28th, $27 for 2 grams of 707 headband. Tuesday, January 29th, $27 all good coconut oil. Wednesday, January 30th, 30% off of all good concentrates. That's shatter, wax, crumble, and batter. Thursday, January 31st, $150 all half good ounces. Friday, February 1st, $45 all good eighths. Don't forget first Friday that night, February 1st, with artist Robert Fox. Robert will be at the shop from 7 to 9 p.m. to talk about his art, and we hope to see a good crowd out for that. Saturday, February 2nd, $12 all one gram king rolls. Sunday, February 3rd, $27 all good coconut oil. As always, thanks to MidToker for allowing us the opportunity to keep you updated on our sales. We hope to see you all down at the shop this week. Take care, Alaska. And Far North Tokers would like to thank Good Cannabis for sponsoring the podcast. Friday and Saturday, 10 to 11. Sunday through Thursday, 10 to 10. 356 Old Steese Highway, Fairbanks, Alaska. 907-452-5463. Good Cannabis. Here's Token. Marijuana has intoxicating effects and may be habit-forming and addictive. Marijuana impairs concentration, coordination, and judgment. Do not operate a vehicle or machinery under its influence. There are health risks associated with consumption of marijuana. For use only by adults 21 and older, keep out of the reach of children. Marijuana should not be used by women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. So you got to be coming up into college times, getting out of high school. Yep. You're you're an ENT. So when did where did that okay happen? yeah so so right out of right out of high school I I actually I moved back up here um, I'd moved back and forth I guess I left that out of the, the, the beginning story um, my dad lived up here my mom lived down in the states and I'd come up here during the summer a lot. is this Oregon time yeah um, to visit my to visit my dad and I really fell in love with Alaska and I was like you know what I uh, I want to try my hand at being a commercial fisherman that looks just super badass. Looks like really hard work and just super rewarding. I was young and hungry for adventure. And uh, so I came up and I... So you left the cannabis farm at this point? Left the cannabis farm. Just like I'm going to go do something else. Yep. Yep. Left the cannabis farm. You know, Dan's like, yeah, thanks a lot. This was awesome. You're, you're welcome here on the commune anytime. I left and I came up and I walked the, the docks looking for a job. I, I didn't get a job on a boat at first. I got a, a job... Um, at it, one of the plants, right? And the work was super hard. It didn't pay jack shit. And I had to work tons of hours, you know? And I was like, man, I'm not making a whole lot more than I was as a ranch hand unless I work crazy hours. Man, I better find some weed. 
I, uh, <clears throat> I'm asking around, and it weed's like impossible to find. If you could find it in the fish plant, it was it was like wet, shitty, or you got ripped off. I was like, ah, someone needs to sell some good weed around here. And so I, you know, I went and, and started trying to make friends with people in town. Ended up meeting a guy who introduced me to a guy. We made a few trips to Anchorage and then came back and, and that was like my side gig while I was at the, the fish plant, you know. So I did that, did that for a couple summers, um, made enough money to live as a surf bum during the winter. And I didn't go to college right away. I'd, I'd work in the fishing industry. Go to Hawaii or something? Uh, no, just the, the West Coast. I liked road trips, so we drove all around Canada, all down the West Coast. We went, um, we, we drove from Valdez to Tijuana and, and back uh, one time. And uh, yeah, and when I'd start to run out of money, I'd come back to Alaska and I ended up getting a job on a fishing boat. And and that was cool. And that's, that's I think, where I really connected with uh, like cannabis existentialism, you know? And, and Time to think. Yeah, and really like really got into meditation with cannabis is we'd have we'd have like a, a really tough day like the you know, it'd be raining sideways and you know, I was the leads guy, it's this heavy job, you're pulling the lead in all day and you're getting the fish and there's close calls all the time. You hear about someone's boat sank or so and so got hurt or you have a close call, you know, you get your slickers cut or I got, I got trapped in the net one time and almost pulled up through the cog and uh, <laughs> pulled at the top. And I was like, man, this is, this is some crazy shit. And so I, I got into this routine, like after we got off of work and instead of just like eating a meal and, and going straight to bed, I was like, you know, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to do some yoga. And so we'd anchor up at the end of the day and everything would get real quiet and I'd, I'd get stoned. Skipper was cool with weed. He didn't give a shit, you know, um, and I would, I would sit on the deck of the boat and just, just listen, you know, like the sound of the waves lapping up and, uh, you know, sometimes puffins flying by and orcas and bears walking on the beach. And I, I think cannabis r- really helped me not only relax, but kind of contemplate nature and just, just how incredible it was, like where I was and, and forget about the stressors of the day. And uh, so, you know, I wasn't in the industry when I was on the boat, but cannabis was like very much a, a part of my life and, and my routine. You'd go out for how long would the boat be out? Three weeks at a time. So you would uh, get a get a stash together and yep. take it out with you, right? Yep, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, we had three weeks worth of water on the boat. And so we'd go out for three weeks and then we'd come back for a day or two. How'd you figure out your rationing? Did you always have enough? Did you ever run out? I never ran out. Um, I, I've always had a fairly low tolerance, um, to substances in general. I would just, I just ration. I got my, you know, tolerance much lower than surf bum levels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I got like, uh, I think I made an ounce last, like most of the summer, you know, I just take, you know, sure. just a little, I had a little tiny, one of those ceramic one hitters that looks like a cigarette, you know, I just take one or two tokes and and chill out if you don't move around a lot you can feel it more too um your silence and all your all your exactly you know and so so even though i consumed very little i spread it out a lot it was it was and you weren't smoking all day you were working exactly i was working all day you know hits a day yeah there were a couple times when we didn't have to work for a few days and we got to you know party and get good and stone and drink some beers that was that was pretty cool but uh, i got done with the fishing industry and i was contemplating buying a boat 
you know, Skipper had made me, um, made me the, the, the mate. I, I got to drive the boat and all this kind of stuff, which the, the skiff guy who had worked there for a couple of years was kind of pissed about. He didn't really like me and he was bummed that the skipper was like moving me up, you know, but I worked really hard and I'm fairly easy to get along with, you know? And so the skipper is like, yeah, you know, Brandon, you're, you're a fairly intelligent guy and you worked super hard. Like you could do all right in this industry, you know, like you ever thought about buying a boat? Like I got a friend who's a banker and stuff and you could join the fleet because we all worked for this fleet called Baron Wolf Fleet. It's just funny. It's spelled like bear, like not bear and wolf. It's like bear and wolf, like all one word, but their symbol was a bear and a wolf. It was really weird. It's like European or something. And he's like, yeah, if you buy a boat, you know, I can get you into the fleet. You know, you can, you can start you know, How old are you being start? your own skipper. I was, uh, I just turned 21. And I thought about it. And I was like, man, I can, I can do this. You know, you had to look, being a, a contemplator, you had to have taken that moment and looked down life. You had to have looking down your, your time path of life and you have to have seen, what does this mean for me? What is my life going to be? And what was it? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. But yeah, so I did. And I, I thought I, I thought long and hard about it. I meditated about it that night. I was like, okay, my skipper, who I really look up to, how did he get to where he was? He was in the Coast Guard. And then he got out of the Coast Guard, got into real estate. And then he, he bought a big, nice boat and just kind of doing it for fun. And then I looked at a lot of the other guys in the fleet, even successful guys, guys who had come up as young fishermen and were doing it. And these guys were so old and so tired, injured, burned out, you name it. And I was like, wow, like that, that, that seems like a really tough road to hoe, you know? And then it's like the next day or the day after we get caught in a storm and we almost go down in this storm. We have to like don our Gumby suits. The, the waves came and busted out one of the windows. What, what happens when that's, are you notified that, oh, shit's going down right now? Or does everyone just know? Or is there some you, like activation that happens? So it was, yeah, we, um, cause you know, the weather can change pretty fast. We got a weather report. And we were a little, we were a little far so kind of going alert. from the islands. Yeah. And we're like, all right, well, we think we can make it across Prince William Sound and tuck behind some of these islands. And we just got caught. Luckily, not too far from Glacier Island. And the waves just started hitting us broadside. Threw the net over the side. A bunch of the holds came off. Are you tied on? Windows. Bat- oh, no, I'm trying to like batten down the hatches and stuff like that. Oh, the windows crazy. are breaking out. You know, I go down mm-hmm. below deck and... There's like two guys below deck. One guy's puking. The other guy's crying. I'm like, come on, guys. You got to put your Gumby suit on, blah, blah, blah. Let's go. And I get one of them up and uh, get him in his suit and shit like that. And I'm still trying to bat out stuff. And Skipper's like, fuck that. Like, get up here. Just leave that guy. And like, so dude was just like there. Like, EMT sloshing around. Right? You're saving somebody, right? It was, it was, yeah, it was like one of the things that kind of, I think, pushed me towards that. So I get the one guy who wasn't unsavable. Some people you can't save. People are, if like people refuse to be assisted, you don't let them take you down with them. You know, the one guy I could save, the one guy I could still follow orders. How do you make the, if they just acknowledge you? If they acknowledge you and they, and they have the will to survive, you can save them. If someone, how do you see, how do you, how do you see that they don't have the will? What is that? I think you can look into someone's eyes you just know and, and sort of, you know, view into their soul a little bit. And fear is so. And, and you can see and smell fear on people. Um, and, and courage isn't the absence of fear. 
It's merely the ability to channel it. Um, Do it anyway. Yeah. And so the one guy, like, he was, like, resisting me. And I was like, man, I, I'm just, this, you know, up to our waist in water. It's like, I can save this guy. We get up top. And we got our, I got that dude in his Gumby suit. Skipper and I have our Gumby suits on. And I'm like, it's, like, super hot and, like, sweating, you know, in this suit. Dude's shivering because we just got him into his. And he's like, all right, boys, we're just going to stay up here if the ship goes over you just jump out as far how many away people, how many men so this was there were four of us and there were three of us that were ma- made it up top the one guy was still just down at the bottom what we didn't know what was going on and uh, and he's on the he's on the horn with the coast guard and they're like hey we're sending the chopper now just hang on all right these are our coordinates we've you know got our survival gear we've got our smoke blah 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 probably survive for a few hours if the waves don't get that bad do you hear that call? Oh yeah, I'm up there when he's making it. Uh-huh. You know, um, or he's he's already made the initial call, and this is like the follow up. He just keeps repeating this over and he was in the Coast Guard okay. um, for a long time. You know, oh, yeah. like all right, yeah, you know, just stay frosty, Skip. Like you, you know, we're coming for you. And I was like, dude, this is effing crazy, man. I actually remember thinking, man, it'd be sweet if I could just like smoke a fucking bowl right now, you know, <laughs> but I couldn't. Um, and Did you tie yourself in or no, no. It's like if the ship was going to go down, we had to like get off the ship. We get and he's got the motor just pinned, and the waves are like, and so it's like, and the water's coming over, and we were just barely close enough to these islands that we got we got in around the horn of one of them, and the waves just calmed down just a little bit, just a little bit. Did you cry or were dancing? Which one? I was I was stoked. I could I could just I could tell. Happy I, I was just stoked. Yeah, when when I could tell that we weren't uh-huh. gonna sink, I was just like, yes, you know. And uh, and the helicopter shows up, circles us a couple times, and he starts to say, hey, we're we're good. You know, we, we made it. Uh, we're just gonna start putting our gear back together, and uh, and we just we got right to work. You know. Um, how about the guy down below? Oh, he was he was done. He was dead. No, he was alive. <laughs> okay. He was just this. Physically, mentally done, had hypothermia because he was, you know, it was water down there, and he was like barely, he was like hanging so he, on to this he rack. Was able like, to activate some kind of monkey part in his brain to stay alive somehow. Exactly, he stayed alive, uh, but just but just it wasn't barely. If the ship had gone down, he would, yeah. And so, yeah, we uh-huh. uh, we start putting the boat back together, and uh, we go right into port, and we start fixing our our boat, drying it out, kicks dude off. And, uh, yeah, we got everything back together, and uh, we, we headed right back out and, and started fishing. Um, Get back on the horse. Just got back on, you know, and that was then and there, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to college. <laughs> Dab Lab AK, winner of Cannabis Classic 2017, Alaska's best glass shop, and there's no doubt as to why. High-quality, American-made glass, none of this cheap import stuff. With the best CBD and accessories available on the market, all in a comfortable, professional setting at competitive prices. Support local, College Road, Fairbanks. I'm going to let my buddy Alaska Red tell you. For the highest-quality glass that you're going to find in Alaska, head on down to my buddy's shop, Dab Lab AK, 3410 College Road. That's Dab Lab AK, 3410 College Road, Fairbanks, Alaska. 10 to 9, Sunday through Thursday, open till 11, Friday to Saturday. For all your cannabis accessory needs, Dab Lab AK. Backtrack provided by Alaska Red, Lyrical Sticker. <laughs>
Did you want to not go back out on that time? Like when you guys cleaned it up and went back out, were you like, I don't want to go back out there? It was exciting. Oh, really? You know, I, it solidified for me that I didn't want to do that as a career, but I was just like, wow, like, yeah, bring it on ocean. Let's do this. I've always been a bit of a risk taker, I think. And so I, yeah, I was like, well, you're going to use your brain now more than your body. Exactly. I was like, yeah. So between like seeing these skippers and I decided to go to college and pursue a degree. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I know I want to do something cool. I, I thought in high school that, that botany or the cannabis industry and how the sciences, you know, kind of coalesce would be interesting, but were you still into fitness at the time and keeping your body healthy? And- yep. Yep, my first job that I got uh, in college, uh, I applied to be a uh, diet counselor at this little small gym here in Fairbanks. I got the job. So you were you went to UAF? Went to UAF. Yep. Yeah, I went to UAF for uh, for four years. I went to University of Hawaii for a year on exchange. That was nice. really cool. Oh yeah, I went to went to college and I was studying biology. Started supplementing my uh, my income with. Did it come Canada's, down to money again, or just you couldn't get good weed? It was just I couldn't get good weed. Yeah, it seems you know, I hear like, that story so many times. Yeah, it's like it was it was like almost the same as the fish plant. Only the dudes that were selling this thought they were like the coolest fucking guy around too. So it's like at least buying it from the Filipino dudes, they were polite. They just had crappy weed. These freaking spoiled white kids at the university, they think their their shit is the best, and it's crap. And I was like, guys, like come on, like oh dude, this is the you know diggity dank. And I was like, <laughs> I used to work on it like an organic pot farm in Eugene, Oregon, man. Like I know what good weed is, bro. I was like, you know, it's tough having to buy that too when you're like, oh, "Oh, it was hard. I was like, this is bullshit, you know. And I was like, so I was like, all right, well, fuck it. I guess I'm back in the cannabis industry. And uh, Alaska had medical; the laws weren't that tough. It's like, yeah, they'll still put you in jail if they catch you with too much. And so I was like, you know what? I got a little more knowledge, a little more savvy under my belt. I'm gonna grow. I had some really good strains that I I brought up with me as seeds from from Oregon, from different friends who were growers that I'd always. Hung on to. What was it? um, It was a Northern Lights number five cross tie land race. And I got this one pheno out of it that was awesome. It was a Northern Lights number five plant, except the colas, I shit you not, were as big around as my water bottle. It was awesome. And all my years of growing, just happening upon those genetics, that was some of the best stuff I'd ever grown. And I knew some of the least about. Growing at the time. And granted, I had a, I had a pretty firm really grass and organic. I just had super good genetics, <laughs> you know. And, uh, yeah, and I, I found a guy who um, was was growing. I actually got a couple funny stories about growers and dealers that I met. I, I met a guy who had weed, and he sold it to me in a box. It's like, your weed's in a box, bro. Oh, yeah, that's just what I had. I was like, you're a grower. He's like, what? No. I was like, dude, your weed is like kind of trimmed, kind of not. It's larfy, so it hasn't been packaged before. It would be all broken up. And he sold it to me in a box. What kind of like, box? Like a, like a, a, a zero box kind of thing? Or? Uh, it, was, uh, it was like a small, one of those small cardboard boxes that used to mail stuff. Okay. You know? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, all right. You know, because it was like. What do you have? Uh, it was some sort of a, a haze that was just really poorly grown. Well, no, it I mean, like, it's just what he had his package. Oh, it was just what he had. Yeah, just from what he had. Bags around, he's like a fucking Yeah, he was like from the bush, and and I was like, I can help you a lot, you know. And he's like, Yeah, right. I don't even know. And I was like, Okay, here's my cred. Blah blah blah. I was like, You can call my old boss if you want. I was like, I know how to grow weed. I don't claim to be the best grower, but I know how to grow weed. I can turn your marijuana business around if you bring me on. And he's like, All right, shit. 
They're obviously not a cop. Came in and he had this like buried Connex, right? Oh, <laughs> cool. Well, those are the dreams. People talk about that all the time. That's cool. Buried Connex, like, wow, that's that's cool. And it had like all the right stuff in it. He's like, yeah, I found all this shit on the internet, man, you know, and da-da-da, and I got these lights and these fans and all this shit. And I was like, dude, with a little bit of tweaks here, some good genetics and a good watering program, get rid of your bugs and shit like that. I was like, you're going to have some fucking chronic weed, man. And he's like, all right, yeah, you know, I'll fucking, I'll partner up with you. You know, y'all supply the, I'll supply the freak in the building, power and all that shit. And you take care of the, the, the marijuana business side of things, and uh, let's do it. And so for uh, about a, a solid year, we grew together in, in this underground conics, and we just had the, the dankest shit. Well, was it your strings that you brought in? It was, yeah. So it was that Northern Lights number 5 cross tie land race. I didn't even know what it was. It just it said Northern Lights number 5 cross tie. Also had this strain called it's like Isomin or something. It's a it's like a famous Canadian hockey player, mm-hmm. and it was pretty good. It's from a Canadian buddy of ours. It, it like wasn't a yielder, but it had like this awesome fuel smell and like rock hard nugs. It sold well. And it was different, you know. It stuck out the name. It stuck out. Yeah, I was like, well, we got all this weed. His buddies like they all smoke, but none of them really bought a lot. No one was like a dealer, and so I was like, fuck, I gotta find a weed dealer. Where do you meet a weed dealer in this town? I like went around to the bars. And but you're at the university at this point, right? I'm at the university, yeah. But you just didn't want to mix things there, or what was the? Oh, I was just, just like, find anybody. I was just I yeah, didn't want to deal with your kids. The, the, I was just searching around. Yeah, and I didn't want to deal with the dipshits from right. my fucking dorm, you know. Yeah, so I go to the bars. Turned out the bars are not the place to find weed dealers. You know, there's like the, all the bouncers at the bars think they're cops and shit. And I was like, okay, so they don't sell weed at the bars here. It's a little different from Eugene. There's no Saturday market. In the summertime, there it is, but they don't sell weed at the Saturday market here. I was like, how the fuck do you find a weed dealer? So I was like, I started asking these guys again, hey, man, you know, I, I, I want to uh, want to meet your, your weed dealer. Like, oh, no, no, he's super secretive. And I was like, dude, come on. Like, I can uh, I can get him better weed. Like, yeah, right, dude, you don't know shit. Blah, blah, blah. Like, these guys are fucking assholes. And I was like, all right, whatever, dudes. And so I just started casing them. Right? <laughs> I just fuck. Yeah, you make it happen. I just follow them around, you know? Uh-huh. Be like, oh, we're going to get weed. I'm like, yeah, I got five on it, you know? And I just follow them. I'm like, oh, you can't come. It's like, all right. And just watch where they're going. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there was always this car that would pull up, right? And they'd get in the car. And the car would do a happy lap around the yeah, campus. The and then it'd get out. And they'd come back and they'd have the weed. Same car. Three different times. Like, all right, cool. I got this. So I just wait for the car to pull up one day. And I just hop in behind the driver. And uh, I look at the two other guys. I was like, you dipshits, get the fuck out of here. I'm like, oh, oh, shit, man. They bounce. And the guy's like, oh, who are you? I was like, just drive. You know? And he's like, oh, oh, what? you the DA. Because um, I was dressed bold. pretty conservatively and really <laughs> bold, you know? And, and and I was like, just just drive, dude. And he's like, oh, no. And he starts, and he starts like, spilling his guts. Like, oh, this. And I was like, dude. Do you think he's being robbed or DA? He didn't know. He didn't know if he was being robbed or I was a cop. I think he, he thought more that I was a cop, okay. you know. And then when I was like, no, I'm not a cop, then he thought he was being robbed. And he's like, dude, I, dude, I'll just be cool, man. Like, I don't have any weapons or anything. Like, I'm a peaceful man, blah, 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 all this. And I was like, that's, that's cool. Like, I'm, I'm not going to fuck your shit up. And uh, he's like, okay. And then I had a J of that stuff behind my ear, a big fat one. And I just start sparking it up back there and smoking it. 
And he pulls over and gets out. He's like, what the fuck, man? Like, who the hell are you? I'm going to be your best friend, brother. Like, you, you run a pretty tight ship, you know? You've got these guys convinced that you'll cut them off if they give you up. Like, you probably shouldn't be doing your deals in front of the school building anymore. But I can tell you're, like, the guy around here, you know? He's like, oh, yeah, I've been doing it for a while, you know? And I was like, check this shit out. I had an ammo can with me, right? And I fucking open up the ammo can, and it's like... Nothing the dude's ever seen before. Maybe once or twice. You know, again, not the best weed in the world as far as the cannabis industry is concerned. But but then, it was the best stuff on campus for sure. I'd like to think the whole town. And he's just like, what in the hell is this stuff, dude? And I was like, all right, how much are you getting your shit for? And what sort of quantities do you need? And so we totally cut out his other guy and started working and I actually ended up getting a scrap with these dudes at a party a few weeks later. Like, oh, you're the fucking guy that's... The dealer or the younger guys? The, the, the no, guys. his supplier. His guy. His guy, you know? And him and his buddies were fucking weak sauce. But I was just like, yeah, like, screw you guys, man. You've been ripping everyone. I'm not, I'm not fucking with your game, you know? You're like, you guys are ripping the consumers off. Got that product. I was like, yeah, I, it's like, you got to dry your shit out. For one, and you just need you need better growing techniques and stuff. It's, this is one of the arguments for the legal regulated industry, because the way the deal went down is like you guys just leave me alone, or else. And they believe me. Hi, I'm Hippie Aaron at Frozen North Farms. Here at our family-owned and operated farm, we hand trim and water our fine cannabis. We are small craft harvest, so the next time you're at your local dispensary, ask your favorite bud tender for Frozen North Farms products when you're looking for Hippie's quality stash. Frozen North Farms. Marijuana has intoxicating effects and may be habit-forming and addictive. Marijuana impairs concentration, coordination, and judgment. Do not operate a vehicle or machinery under its influence. There are health risks associated with the consumption of marijuana. For use only by adults 21 and older, keep out of the reach of children. Marijuana should not be used by women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. I did that for a handful of years, and it was cool, but I started to get a little too big. I was like, man, if I get busted, it'll really suck. So you were more worried about getting busted than someone coming in and, like, robbing you. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, as far as I could tell, there's no organized gangs in this town other than the Hells Angels. They're an older crowd, Mm -hmm. and they didn't control the, the marijuana market. There's no marijuana cartel. If there was, I would have had some issues because I was just a one-man operation. What was done, I think, by that time. Yeah. So, yeah. And so I never had any problems with the bikers. Some random dipshit grower and his buddies are not going to... Did you ever sell to any bikers? No, I never sold to the bikers. Just didn't come across? They just didn't... Your, your circles didn't overlap? Didn't overlap. And, uh, you know, I grew up around a lot of bikers and I, I didn't want to... I didn't want to become part of that circle because I didn't want to start selling to the wrong guy. No, it's a... And end up getting appropriated or or something like that. I just... Yeah. Taken care of. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I mean, I could fit in with the bikers, but I was like, I, I decided not to become a biker. Um, yeah, for, you look down that road. For a reason. You, you, yeah, you know. And, and uh, nothing against the bikers. I love bikers. My market was the college. What year is this when you're deciding it's getting too big and it got to be done? This was uh, 2000 and... Five, two thousand and six, right? Yeah, I mean, um, are, I mean, there was a little bit of anti pushback there too. There was a failed initiative in right. two thousand and four, 
uh, got its butt kicked. Yeah. There was definitely, and I, I wasn't involved politically <laughs> at all. I actually didn't, uh, I didn't know that my ability to network and to essentially harness fear was a political skill. I always just thought it's that's what old rich people do, and you know, working so class people just don't do not in your politics, policy. No, I, uh, I I liked first and foremost, I, I liked to have fun. School was convenient. I liked business. I didn't really know I liked business at the time, but I look back on it now, and I definitely did. Like I made you know a solid chunk of my life being a businessman, a clandestine one, but so. I decided to go to paramedic school and through paramedic school. What's taken to, have you graduated UAF at this point? No, no, I'm in UAF. I'm like a sophomore or a junior at UAF. Is paramedic, I don't know how that happens. Is it like a, it's a, so it's, it's, um, so it is a, it's an associates program and a certificate program all at the same time. Okay. So you've got to get all your certificates. You got to get your state licensure, but then it's also a degree. So it's an associate's in emergency medicine. So it's going to cut your your four year biology degree that you were starting in down. It that- it's well. So it has some of the same prerequisites, but it it uh, yeah. I, I I stopped taking biology and chemistry and did paramedic school, and I loved it. It was it was awesome. Why did you? What was that decision? What, what made it? A couple things be, because like there had been times in my life where I was in like these really stressful emergency situations, and I realized that I was the kind of person that that could always come to the problem with a clear head. You didn't shut down like you've seen other people do. Exactly, and and I I really I really enjoy helping people if I can. That's more than helping. You mean like saving people. Yeah. Not yeah. like helping people across the street and helping with their homework. But e- like... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like helping people in, in really tough situations. I'd, I'd make people pay me to help them with their homework, actually. Um, but... <laughs> which was a side gig of mine for a while, but... <laughs> yeah. So I was like, wow, this is cool, you know, because I, you know, I'd save a friend from drowning once and there was a the whole thing on the boat and there was times that like I'd intervened when people were getting jumped and shit like that, you know, and... I'd, I'd kind of like to become a cop, but the drug war culture, I just couldn't. There's no way I could stomach it. I just couldn't do it. And I was like, well, being a paramedic would be great. So I get to help people. It's exciting. No drug war. In fact, I get to give people drugs. <laughs> so, and I did really, I did really well. Like having the biology prerequisites, it trans, you know, transferred directly into emergency medicine memorizing all the different drugs and the anatomy and the physiology and the psychology that goes into it. And I really, I really excelled. And it was cool. I had a couple buddies that were in paramedic school and we were like thick as thieves. These guys were smart guys. They worked hard. They loved to party. We'd do all of our work and we'd do our clinicals and shit like that. And we'd party our fucking asses off and we'd sleep and then we'd go back and do it all again. And so for this year, we had this, it was just like, we kind of lived together, you know, we'd stay at each other's houses and stuff. And paramedic school worked out really well for me. I ended up becoming the outstanding student for the year. And I was class valedictorian. And so I got to go on a really good internship down. You still growing herb at this time? No, no, I did not. I was not growing herb anymore. So as soon as you went into EMT direction, you're like, okay, I'm going to kind of step back from that. I just didn't have time for it. Oh, and it was and it was like, it was something new and exciting. I didn't quit smoking herb. I got stoned a lot during paramedic school, actually, you know, because it was stressful. But And so I went on my internship down in Oklahoma, <laughs> did my internship, came back, 
and I got all these wicked job offers and shit. And I was like, you know, that was really cool. But, you know, I've always wanted to go and surf in Hawaii. And so before I take the leap into this career, I'm going to continue working on my degree and I'm going to go to University of Hawaii and I'm going to surf. Well, you were talking about going back and forth. Had you surfed before? I'd, yeah, I'd surf some. But you just want to surf. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I, yeah, I was not like, I was, I was not an amazing surfer, uh, but I was like, Hawaii is like the, the place to go. And so I went to Hawaii and Hawaii was, was freaking crazy. Like I took all of my, cause I got like student loans to go there, a few grants and I took all my student loan and grant money. And instead of like just going and moving into the dorms, I used it all to rent this like huge house on the gamble that I could sublet all the rooms, mm-hmm. which was said it was against my lease, but I didn't really care about rules, you know, it's just funny that I'm so steeped in rules now, but so I get this out and I got all these crazy roommates, man, just the, the craziest, which island were you on? I was on big island and we were right next to a really impoverished community. Like we were in like the decent neighborhood, but it was right next to a really impoverished neighborhood. And so riding my bike through the neighborhood to school was, was tough. But I, I did it. I, you know, it took me a while to fit in, but I finally was able to fit in there. You know, did you earn some Hapa Holly. I did. I became Hapa Holly. You know, nice. between between earning some credit on the on the surf break and getting in a few fights on the street on the way to school, I I was able to become Hapa. You know, you're never actually Hawaiian, no. but you can be Hapa. And and I learned that Hawaiians, um, even some of the meaner ones, they're not actually racist. They're just very localist, very ethnocentrist. Well, they've seen their island taken away pretty recently. Exactly. You know, and I, I can understand why they don't like Howleys because people come there. And this is, the, the Japanese get a pass because they get a really good tan and they look Islander. Howleys don't get a pass because we don't look the same. But we do the same stuff. And, and, and in some respects, almost worse. You know, we will go to the island, you know, a rich white guy will go to the islands. He'll buy a bunch of the land right behind the beaches. And even though you can't... Release it. Control, yeah, at least even though you can't control the beaches there, you're not, they'll do everything they can to prohibit people from going to the beach. And that is like the Hawaiian thing is to go, if you're not working, to go and hang out at the beach, you know. And they, they basically, so not only do they shun the Hawaiian people, but they also pay shit wages. Like the cost of living in Hawaii is the same as it is in Alaska. I actually found it to be a little cheaper, but I got most of my food from the forest too, so a little different. But it's the cost of living is the same as it is in Alaska. And all the jobs pay squat. So these hoteliers, they're just raking it in, you know, and they're paying the Hawaiians minimum wage. Fuck that. Right. I'd be pissed off too, you know. And uh, I actually end up making really good friends with a lot of these guys. They, they learned that I worked for the Research Corporation of the University of Hawaii. And I worked out at BJ Penn Mac Club. And that's where I met my weed dealer. This was funny. Again, I had all these wacky roommates. And this one roommate smoked a lot of weed. And I was asking him to introduce me as weed dealer. And he wouldn't do it. I was working out at BJ Penn Mat Club and I was wrestling with this Korean guy. He's just like super cool guy, really good judo wrestler. And um, he's like, oh, you, you, uh, you smoke weed, brah. And I was like, fuck yeah, I've been wanting to find some <laughs> man, you know? And, uh, and he's like, oh, I got, I got you covered, you know? And so it was cool. So like, was it just a wrestler thing that he was asking? Cause sometimes when you're hanging out with people, you kind of certain words they say stick out or was he just like, he was wanting to get high too. And he was like, all right, you, you get high. I think he could, he could tell from the way I spoke, you know, right. I, yeah, there's I, certain I, words people throw out and what they, exactly, you know, and just the way I acted and stuff like that. And it's, it's Hawaii too, man. Cops smoke weed over there, you know? And uh, so he's like, oh, yeah, you need some weed, bro. I was like, fuck yeah. So he hooks me up, 
And uh, man, they got good shit over there. Yes. It's outdoor, and it's, it's just, the conditions are so perfect, and they got great strains. Dude was telling me that Maui, that Maui Wowie, he was actually telling me about his uncle was one of the dudes that, you know, sold Alaskan tundra fuck up here back in the day. Did you hear that? Tundra? Not thunder. Tundra. And that he's he claimed that Alaskan tundra fuck or Matanuska tundra fuck. You're called a tundra. I hear it called thunder. So so that? it started out as Matanuska tundra fuck. Then it became like Alaskan Thunderfuck, just the, the telephone game. Yeah. The original yeah. is called Matanuska Tundrafuck. And the story was, and I've heard the same story from from a handful of guys. It was interesting hearing it from the dude in Hawaii. I think Ron Bass might actually uh, be able to lend some uh, uh, some info to this one. I'll have to watch his story again. But hi, Ron. <laughs> Anyways, the Hawaiian guy, he said that the, the Matanuska Tundrafuck was actually Maui Wowie that was brought up by a guy during the pipeline, right? But the Maui Wowie was actually like a, a, a Thai, Vietnamese, or Cambodian land race that was brought over to the islands from the soldiers in Vietnam. Mm. Dude was pretty pretty well educated in the cannabis. And, and uh, he was still, you know, guarded, but he, he told me, you know, a lot about their growing methods and stuff like that and how they, they grow a lot of the stuff at a certain elevation on Kona side where it's like it's a perfect amount of rain, volcanic soils, 75 degrees every day, every night, year round. It'd be almost impossible to, to recreate those kind of conditions most places on the planet, you know. So Hawaii's got 11 of the 13 biomes that are available on the entire globe. So didn't, didn't sell weed in Hawaii at all. Had my guy. He was the guy around there. And um, there's the whole turf thing and stuff. And so I was just like, you know what? I'm not even going to try to be in the industry here. I got a good thing going with, you know, at school. And I was working a lot for the research corporation. And, um, yeah, I just, you know, buy grams from dude like once a week or Mm -hmm. something like that. And it was pretty cool. And then like surfing and smoking weed afterwards was just so awesome. I tried surfing on weed and I found one of two things. Either if I was only like lightly, like pleasantly stoned, that I couldn't tell I was stoned when I was surfing, you know, especially if the waves were bigger mm-hmm. and you're doing a lot of paddling. And if I got too stoned, it kind of detracted from my experience. Just didn't want to do it or just... It, it definitely, it, and this is going to sound stereotypical, but yeah, it took away some of that drive to like really charge hard for a set. It didn't like mess with my hand-eye coordination like a lot of the prohibitionists claim. That's why people that don't crash their cars all the time. But that's why they wait at green lights. Yeah, I'd be like, man, you know, eh, maybe I'll wait for the next set. You know, ah. just sitting there going up and down. Yeah, and you know, and I was like, man, you know, because I'm surfing was like, it was awesome. It was fun. It was also kind of like part of my workout routine, you know. And, uh, but then I was like, dude, so I would, I would go to the surf break, charge hard and get as like dope of a workout as I could, especially when the waves were real big. I got into to surfing big waves because the way I got respect on the surf break actually. Otherwise, I was just going to be some random howly out there. Yeah, one of the times that I almost died was there in Hawaii on a real big wave. Got pounded. It was crazy. And just hold your breath and wait. Yep, just hold your breath and just wait, you know. And then the worst is when you come up. 
The North Bowl Refinery is here to provide Alaska with the finest quality CBD available on the market today. They carry a wide range of CBD, oils, tinctures, capsules, edibles, lotion, bath bombs, vape pens, pet tincture, and isolate. The North Bowl Refinery is a distributor to these fine locations. Smoking deals in Fairbanks and Kenai, Nature's Relief, Grass Station 49 locations, Wishful Things, China Hot Springs, Denali's Cannabis Cash, Uncle Herbs in Homer and Anchorage, Frost Farm with more locations coming soon. Check them out at thenorthbowlrefinery.com. The North Bowl Refinery, quality CBD in Alaska. And you're like, oh, and the wave comes again. Boom, like, oh, fuck, you know. Um, and Be so, disoriented. Yeah, and like, yeah, so I, you know, we do these like, you know, big sets. And that was the coolest part. It's like showing up to the break sober having had like a really light breakfast or a smoothie or something get your mind right paddle out catch some big waves get your workout in and then come in and then chill up on the the bluff and well, just watch the waves and get yeah, stoned what you're you know? talking about of being on the fishing boat yeah you know you do your you do your hard stuff and then to sit on the beach and it's the same thing it's the favorite sounds in my life is sitting there in maui up against uh, like some kind of a uh, pier kind of thing and the water coming up onto a pebble beach the water running down through the pebbles and the pebbles falling down over themselves oh yeah I mean I I cannot crumbling sound it is the most beautiful sound sit there and smoke a jay and listen to that sound. So you're out there, the sun going down probably, or sun coming up. Sun, yeah, so the morning. morning yeah. The morning, yeah. I didn't, I didn't sharks surf. Sharks huh? Well, you know, it wasn't so much the sharks. It was just that um, I, I was really focused on both getting into great shape and getting getting good grades that was like that was Routine, like huh? my focus when I was there. Yeah, I was determined to be on the dean's list and so I didn't... Uh, I didn't skip class to surf. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't go surf a lot of night sets, you know, or evening sets when everyone else would go. I'd do my homework, I'd eat dinner, and I'd go to bed. But if I did that and I got up real early, there are less guys out on the break. The morning guys are the older surfers and the more experienced surfers. There's a lot less bullshit on the break in the morning. And you can meet some of the, the older locals and talk to them and stuff where like you go after school gets out and it's like every random douche from the university, all of the locals for the getting off work and stuff like drinking. that, you know, yeah, people are drinking and stuff and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love to drink beer, but that just wasn't my scene. Like I love surfing, but the, like that evening surf crowd was not for me, you know, but like I said, if, if I got up early I could surf. That's when the waves are the best, yeah. you know, is when there's, you know, first light, offshore wind. I, I just repeated the same routine over and over. I'd, I'd get up in the morning, I'd surf, I'd go to school, I'd get done with school, and I'd either go to work or I'd do my homework, and uh, I'd come home, I'd eat, I'd go to bed, and then we'd go and do something fun on the weekend. And it was just, it was like wash, rinse, repeat, but I never got tired of it. Was that your final year? 
that was that was my that was the one year I did in Hawaii. I actually had another another year left. So you came of, back after surfing of college, and yeah. And, well, and it, it's interesting. I actually I didn't I didn't come back to finish my degree. I I thought I was I was going to stay in Hawaii. I was going to maybe work part time as a paramedic, but I was really contemplating just just taking an advanced degree program and continuing to work at the university. Yeah, just focusing on like surfing and research, you know, and I, I made really good friends with my boss, who was also one of the professors there, offered me a degree program, a master's or a PhD program after I finished my bachelor's. And I was like, you know, I started this paramedic thing. It would take me a long time to work up through the private industry they have here for, you know, a lot of the medics are, it's a private company. And then you could get into the fire department. It's like super hard to get into the fire department there, you know. I'm going to go back to Alaska. I'm going to go to UAF. And I'm going to join the university fire department so I can work as a full-time paid firefighter paramedic and I can finish my degree program. Sometimes I, I wish I would have never left. I also, also wouldn't have met my beautiful wife if, if I, uh, if I had stayed in Hawaii or I met her before I moved to Hawaii, but I, we wouldn't be together today. You know, it's hard to say with those things. I've had those thoughts too. And I, I, I think those people that you're meant to be with, you'd have found them later. Yeah, you know your past would know, across somewhere, or just but I, I yeah, maybe I would. Yeah, and so I mean, really, it was all about me and my, you know, my career. And I was like, you know, Hawaii will always be there. I really, I really want to see this paramedic thing through. You know, I don't like to leave anything on the table. I go back. I join the university fire department. Become a firefighter. Do my degree program and working as a full time paid firefighter. The university fire department doesn't pay very much, but is one of the best, if not the best firefighting program in the country because wow. you it's not like volunteering <laughs> you work 24 on 48 off you do everything that a career firefighter does the only thing that's different is the pay you know there's a recruitment process and you're all about the experience that's what you wanted right exactly it was all about the experience i wanted to get in there and, and, and do it you know and part of me was happy to be back in alaska winter rolled around eh, not so much so I'd come back to work as a full-time firefighter paramedic at the University Fire Department and continue pursuing my degree program, right? I'm working as a firefighter, going to school, kind of going through the motions. Wasn't, wasn't taking either firefighting or college all that seriously. You met your wife at this point? I had, yes. I, I had met her. So I actually met her right before I moved to Hawaii. Ooh. But nothing, you guys weren't connected? No, no, we weren't dating or anything like that. I just, I just met her a couple times, thought she was cool. We hung out at a party once, you know. Always saved her phone number, though. When I came back, we, yeah, we started dating right around the time that I started with the University Fire Department, I think. I joined the uh, the rugby team at UAF. There's a, rug, a rugby club. That was really, really Have cool. you done rugby before? I had I'd never played rugby before that. I'd, I'd played like no pads football before, but I'd never actually played rugby before that. I'd heard of it. I'd seen it on TV. looked super rad. I was like, wow, this is hella rough. It's like wrestling, but football, like soccer. So I, I fell in with this group of rugby bums. I've learned that l- rugby is the, the world's largest social fraternity. And I'd always wanted to be part of a fraternity in college. Um, and I actually called some of the fraternities at the, at the U and they said, oh, no, we don't have social fraternities here. We're not allowed to have social fraternities. Apparently, UAF has a ban on social fraternities. There's only service fraternities. Mm-hmm. And so you can't have a house. You can't you can't do the Greek stuff. You know, mm-hmm. it's like basically like a club. 
for you to get good grades. And uh, I was like, well, you know, I'd done the whole dean's list thing in Hawaii. And so I wasn't actually that focused on getting good grades. I just wanted to be, you know, so I wanted to be a good paramedic, see where that took me. And I wanted to really, I wanted to really have a great time. And this rugby thing seemed really cool. And so we all banded together and we got a big house called the Rugby House. And we threw some parties, man. We, I think our record once was uh, 400 people. So I just love it, Brandon. I, I love the idea that you guys, you see something that can't happen, so you're like, fuck it, I'm just going to do it anyway. I don't have weed, I'm going to grow better weed. I can't have a fraternity that I want, I'm going to make it. Yeah. I'm not going to call it that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a club. Yes, we made our own fraternity. It was like 12 dudes that all lived in the same house together at any one time, living communally. And uh, yeah, working out together, studying together, drinking together, playing rugby. And, uh, and yeah, we threw these massive parties and we became wildly popular. It was super cool. We actually stole the thunder from the hockey team because even though, I mean, it's cold most of the time. So the only time we could really actually play rugby was most of the time school was out. But we, we brought the rugby culture, which is, is a lot like Greek life, to the school. And we all, we all wore our rugby shirts and we'd have these big parties where we'd have like drinking competitions and singing songs and all this stuff and we'd go and we'd play rugby games in the snow and invite people to come and got a couple scraps with the, the hockey players a couple times and did they ever come out and play rugby against you guys you know that they cool. a couple of them did actually we uh um the hockey team didn't play rugby against <laughs> us we didn't play hockey against them but a couple of them did uh did actually come and uh and and play some scrimmages with us and a few of the guys on both the fire department and the rugby team were hockey players played pickup games at the the uh the dipper played some open skate and stuff and and so we kind of settled our beefs. There, there were a couple times where they weren't that stoked on us. We weren't that stoked on them because they sometimes were rude. When we came to a mutual understanding, then we all started partying together. They'd all come to our parties because we had this massive house. And, and they found out they could come party at our place. And as long as they behaved, they didn't have to worry about getting in trouble because they weren't partying at their place. And they were like, could be anonymous and shit. Mm-hmm. You know, we ended up making friends with a few of them. We got to the point where we actually had to charge people to come to our parties because they would be like, over capacity we got to a point where we had to have security so whoever whoever was on shift at the fire department the next day because it's eight hours bottle of throttle you do not drink the night before you're going on shift as a firefighter and so the guys who were going on shift the next morning would be security and uh, we'd check people's IDs and we would sell wristbands there was a couple incidents where people didn't want to pay and we we tossed them out which is pretty funny so it got to be where we were funding the house by throwing parties mm. the beer the rent fuel and a place got kind of wrecked mm-hmm. but again it's a it's a basically a working class frat house you know no one's rich dad was paying for it to stay nice and our uh, our landlord was this like friendly schizophrenic he always had this journal where he thought that we were like in cahoots with the DEA and had this like clandestine meth lab and all this shit but Really, he could come over there whenever he wanted. He'd come over and drink beer with us and stuff. Nice guy. It was just crazy as shit. He's like, oh, I've been taking notes on you guys. <laughs> so anyways, we had, a, we had an, an amiable landlord. Uh-huh. You know, because he's like, yeah, I'm condemning this place after you fuckers move out of here. So that was that was really my focus for a while, was was really just the social aspect of college life. You know, I'd been, I'd been kind of real studious before that. Well, you, you know, know, you're getting ready to start... A big change, right? You're going into a career, and exactly, I'm going into a career, and so I want to, I want to get like get the lead out, you know, and just just party, and I, I just 
kept good enough grades to just stay in college, you know. But what do I want to, what do I actually want to do? And I thought back to that day that the helicopter showed up. Is this during one of your contemplation moments, smoking some herb? It is. It is. Yeah. It was on one of, uh, it was actually, it was, it was after, uh, after a rugby game and uh, it was a midnight sun game. So we were playing late at night and we, uh, we had a great match. We won. We didn't actually win a lot of games. We were known as the, the best social club. We like love to host other teams and stuff like that. It's a big part of rugby is hosting, but we weren't that good, but we won, which was cool. And uh, so we're at the, the drink up, as it's called afterwards, where people drink beer and smoke weed and sing songs. I'm just sitting there and I'm watching them, you know, the kind of that surreal glow of the midnight sun and I'm smoking a J and licking a wound. I still remember actually the taste of like the blood in my mouth from my bloody lip, taste of the weed kind of mixing together, you know, and profound moment. Right yeah. There. Being sore. What do I want to do? And so, yeah, I, I, I thought about the helicopter. Like I want to do something great. And I don't have the benefit of coming from a wealthy family. I know I'm not a genius. So I want to do something that, that makes an impact that I can say, yeah, man, I did that. And I'm, I'm proud of it. And it's, it's badass, you know. I'm going to get on a helicopter-based search and rescue team, which is really fucking hard, hmm. you know. I mean, there's only a handful of those positions in the country. you got to be the top of your game. I just dove deep into being a paramedic and, and really dove into getting good grades again in my biology courses because I knew that was going to help me be a better paramedic. Other classes I didn't give a shit about. So I get A's in my bio and chemistry courses and I, I even got a few F's, but C's and D's in a lot of my other classes. But I made sure to become a really, really good paramedic. I became an instructor for every alphabet course you can think of. I um, became a substitute teacher at the paramedic school. I picked up extra shifts whenever I could. I picked the brains of all the best medics I knew. I was like, I want to be the best at this. And I started really hitting the PT hard. I've always been in pretty good shape. But I was like, I got to get strong. I got to get lean. I got to get my cardio up. I've got to be the best goddamn candidate that they've ever seen. And a, uh, a job opening came up for um, a company called Air Rescue Systems which was the interior of Alaska's helicopter-based search and rescue. They covered the eastern Alaska range and the, the military bases when the, the army was at war. So like right now, there's actually there's no search and rescue in Alaska other than the military. I was like, I'm going to do this. And some, some of the guys are like, you really, really think so, Emmett? Like, you've been a paramedic for, what, two years? You're 26, oh, 27? You can't do it. Yeah, a couple, couple guys. <laughs> My buddies were really supportive. They're like, dude, Evan, you got this, man. My chief was really supportive. But I think some of my primary motivation was some of the naysayers. Sure. Some of the guys that like, because I was known as like the partier and kind of a fuck off other than amongst the paramedics. The paramedics were like, no, when Emmett is on the ambulance, he's all business. But at the station, I was a prankster and shit like that. You know, I, I pranked a lot of guys. We got some good good pranks I can tell you about. Uh, hidden alarm clock pranks are the best because oh. I was all sleep deprived and shit. Yeah, so I applied... I get, I get an interview and I'm like, oh shit, I, I got an interview, you know? And, and they're like, all right. And they tell us, they're like, all right, there are, uh, there are, uh, you know, like 160 applicants. We narrowed it down to 16 of you guys. <clears throat> um, so now you got to take an aptitude test. So they give you a couple tests. They gave you a, like a paramedic test and then they gave you, um, just like a, uh, an intelligence test, like a cognitive reasoning test and like the have like the different arrows that are pointing which ways or which bucket's going to fill up sure. fastest, all that kind of shit. And it's timed. I felt like I did pretty, 
pretty good on that one. I knew I got like 100% on the paramedic test, though. I knew what it. What a feeling. I had rocked it. I was like, I was like, fuck, I teach this shit, man. Yeah. They narrowed it down to just a handful of guys, and it was actually this one random guy and a good buddy of mine and I. You know, we made it to the end. And uh, the last test was the physical agility test and the chief's interview. And my, my buddy and I were always just like, Neck and freaking neck in this stuff. He's like, he's like this really tall, like medium build, good looking guy. Looks like he's Swedish or something like that, you know. We were about the same strength. He had better cardio than I could. He could run farther, faster. I had more intensity. I could like clean more than him and shit like that. And uh, power, power clean, not like. Clean, clean. Okay, yeah. They do in CrossFit. We do the agility test, and we get, like, the same fucking score. He outscored me on the uh, the aerobic stuff. I outscored him on, like, the dummy drag and shit like that, you know? And then it comes down to the final interview. They told me, after I had got the job, that what actually solidified it for them... And this is just shit luck, because my, my buddy's a great guy. Likes to help people. But during the first day when I showed up there to just inquire about the job, they were moving a bunch of, like, bags and stuff around. And I was, like, following the manager around, asking her stuff, and was just grabbing. And, and I just kind of, like, fell in and started helping out. You know, it's like, you don't, you don't stand there while someone else is working. You just don't do that, you know. Either you're leading back to your farm or you're helping. Exactly. You do not lean on the shovel, man. <laughs> so I end up getting the job, and I'm just, like, blown away. Like, oh, my gosh. Dream come true. And it was it was awesome. It was truly a dream job. They were paying me a ton. Full coverage, health insurance, life insurance. I only had to work eight shifts a month. Our backyard, our training ground, was the Alaska Range. Like, we were based at Fort Greeley. We got paid to lift weights, go running, study our paramedic texts, eat food, and fly around a helicopter. And, and every once in a while, we'd go out and save somebody. Mm-hmm. And it was it was just the best. And so I did that. I did that for a couple years. I guess it's it's noteworthy. I, I quit smoking weed. Definitely noteworthy. Just because you're just, you're activating and you're going to be the best you can be. No, because they gave me UAs. Oh, okay. I still, I still drank beer. Oh, oh, hell yeah. You would have, oh, would, that yeah. wasn't part of. The- yeah, but it was, it was. It's noteworthy because it was it was worth it for me to have that job to mm-hmm. to quit smoking, right? And I, I definitely I toned my drinking down a lot from when I was doing the the whole time you were EMT, you never toked or because it was just UA or just that specific job for search and rescue. Mm-hmm. I, I smoked weed the entire time I was a firefighter because they didn't piss test again. And you just didn't want to lose it. I mean, it, 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 I'd worked so I'd worked so damn hard. I yeah I did not want to lose it and it's like and they they gave us a lot of UAs because it's the FAA you have to be part of this like constant UA program to be a crew member on an aircraft right and our company was pretty hardcore and so they give us these UAs all the time and they they were quote unquote random I got them all the time I was like the guy that got selected for randoms like twice as often but everyone knew I was a stoner so just keeping you in check trust but verify exactly and so I didn't I didn't smoke. If I would go on vacation, which I got to do a lot because I only work eight days a month, we could do shift trades so you could like stack your eight days and have the rest of the month off mm-hmm. and uh, we're getting paid a lot. So Allison and I went on tons of vacation. We went back, we went to Hawaii like four times one year. 
basically spent all the money that I was making there on living. I was, I guess I was still just a big kid. If I went on vacation for like three weeks solid, I would smoke weed the very first day that we landed in Hawaii, but that was it. Would you do any like the treatments at the end or do you drink a lot of water? Or you just no, I just knew my body really well. I took a lot of home tests when I was cleaning up for, to apply for the mm-hmm. job, you know, and I, um, when you were clean. yeah, I could, could tell when I was clean, you know, and I, you know, very, and so, yeah, I could get away with, with when I, when I went on vacation, I knew I had a solid three <laughs> weeks, I could get good and stoned one day and then I didn't have to worry about it, you know, so I guess I never like completely quit smoking weed. I just abstained like from most of the time, you know, um, from everyday toker to, to not. And, and you're used to that that reflection time. You're used to using it as an after work yeah. thing. So that's yeah, when I was when I was you know in college on the rugby team and firefighter, I other than my shifts, you know, because 24, 48 shifts, you know, obviously I didn't consume cannabis or drink on shift. But uh, yeah, pretty much every day that I wasn't wasn't working, I would smoke weed and drink beer with my rugby buddies. It was just like a thing, you know. I got my tolerance pretty high. But Did yeah, you find yourself drinking more when you weren't smoking. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's the, that's the weirdest thing about these piss tests. Like I talk to some guys, and they talk about like you know drinking all the time and using hard drugs and shit like that. And but we can't smoke weed. Like you can do fucking coke. Three days later, you're gonna be clean. You smoke weed all weekend. Your your job is on the line. Mm-hmm. You know, I would much rather work on the helicopter or on the ambulance with a guy who got really stoned the night before than with a guy who got really drunk two nights before. Because just because, like, you don't have alcohol in your system, you still have all the metabolites. Metabolites from alcohol are actually really harmful. Like, if you get good and drunk, you're hungover for a couple days. You're not going to be sharp. And I'm, you know, disclaimer, I'm speaking out against alcohol or the alcohol industry. I love alcohol. I drink beer all the time. But, yeah, it's, it's just the hypocrisy that, Someone could have smoked weed weeks ago and and not be able to do a really high-speed job that they're qualified for, but they could drink the day before. And as long as they're not actually drunk on the job, they're fine. Like, oh, so-and-so's hungover shitty. Oh, you think he'll blow? Oh, no, it's been at least 10 hours since he had his last beer. You know, he's just, he's just kind of sick today. Like, all right, so-and-so, you probably shouldn't have done that, but whatever. Whereas it's like, oh, so-and-so smoked weed last night. Oh, he's getting a piss test right now. And so you know your body, just in general, alcohol, most of us that have drank alcohol have gotten sick off of it. Yeah. Most of us that have smoked pot have not gotten sick. No. Unless it's in accordance with alcohol. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I've gotten drunk before and then got two stoned afterwards and thrown up. Ooh, that's but that's bad. one thing I like about cannabis is like, I'll, you know, drink a beer and then take a couple rips off my vape pen and then drink a couple more beers and I feel exactly. good. Like, I feel like I'm drunk and I like... I'll wake up and be like, man, I got pretty hammered last night, but I feel good. The co-committing effects of the cannabis and alcohol together, you know, and the fact that it, unlike a lot of other drugs that you would mix with alcohol, it doesn't continue to lower your inhibition. Like if you mix alcohol with opioids or benzodiazepines, you could be in real trouble. But a lot of the prohibitionists say, oh, we're worried about people mixing cannabis and alcohol. But every single person I know that has been drinking and, and smoked weed or smoked weed and then started drinking really toned down their drinking. If they were already drunk and they smoked weed, they got sick and then they fell asleep. Right. You know, not going out and getting crazier. No. 
or people who started drinking and smoking weed at the same time, they generally drink less because they perceive themselves to be more drunk. And I think that's something that the prohibitionists really need to look at and learn. Chena Cannabis, North Pole Cannabis Dispensary, 1725 Richardson Highway, between North Pole and Fairbanks, right before the Badger Road exit. You're gonna love this place. Convenient access right off the highway. Special in-house strains, fine flower strains, chocolate, sourdough, blue kush, big smooth, purple OG kush, fruity pebbles, mmm, concentrates, by good cannabis, good titrations, edibles by AK Frost and the Good Cannabis Gummies, head on over to Chena Cannabis. Check out the full menu on leafly.com. Open Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 9 p.m. Sunday, noon till 6. You don't have to drive all the way to Fairbanks for your cannabis needs. Save your time. Get your quality cannabis at Chena Cannabis, your North Pole Cannabis Dispensary. Chena Cannabis. Marijuana has intoxicating effects and may be habit-forming and addictive. Marijuana impairs concentration, coordination, and judgment. Do not operate a vehicle or machinery under its influence. There are health risks associated with consumption of marijuana. For use only by adults 21 and older, keep out of the reach of children. Marijuana should not be used by women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. Back to the search and rescue thing. So I was doing the search and rescue thing. I did that for a couple years and was in my stride, was just coasting, making really good money, spending a lot of time with my wife and friends, still, you know, fairly active in the rugby club. You know, things were going good. The contract was going to come up for review from the feds. And around the same time, the program manager got offered a promotion to go down stateside and be an instructor. So I was offered the, the, the job, and I, I, was, I was stoked. Um, I've been kind of putting in for it for a while. And so I find myself, this time I'm 30, I'm the, you know, the program manager, which is like, it's private, but like the chief of a helicopter-based search and rescue outfit that is serving the entire military ranges and all of the Alaska range. And I'm like, wow, I, I think I made it. Like, this is not not really much farther I can go in the paramedic field. And so, I mean, it was awesome. I was like, felt like I was sitting on top of the heap, making incredible money. Well, you know, I'm bored. I did it and I, it didn't feel like I thought I would. Like I'd always wanted to be a search and rescue guy. I thought it'd be cool. And then like working my way up and then, and then becoming to where I, I was like the highest <laughs> ranking private search and rescue guy in Alaska, one of the, you know, one of the highest paid and highest ranking on the West Coast. Well, shit, what do I do now? So then it looked like the contract was coming up for review. And I was approached by one of the pilots because we were, uh, Air Rescue <laughs> Systems was, was a subcontractor and Erickson Air Crane, the helicopter company, was the, the main contractor for the, the military. And it looked like the, the contract was coming up. They're like, you, you know what, Emmett, you should start your own company. Uh, yeah, someone else telling me exactly like, dude, I can get back into business. You know, it's not weed anymore. I kind of miss business. I was fairly good at it, and I can I can progress. I'm not just stuck here in this. Yeah, make it better. Yeah, and it's funny because I felt like stuck, and I was at the top. I was like, but there's gotta be there's gotta be something better, man. They're like, here's the deal. You're 
your company that you work for sucks. They're tough to deal with. They're gouging us. They've never been up here. They've been milking you guys. You and your buddies have run this program for years because I'd ended up hiring all of my friends. It's not all my friends, but the, the captains and officers positions, I had hired guys who were my buddies who had also done really well. And you knew how they worked. Yeah. And, and, you know, it wasn't just a good old boy system. There was a few times where a random guy was just so qualified that, you know, he got hired before one of my friends did. Um, but ultimately, like a bunch of my buddies that wanted to be on the search and rescue team, we're all there together. And it was it was great. It was like the rugby team all over mm-hmm. with helicopters. So I'm like, all right. So we formed this company. That's called 65 North. And it is a helicopter-based search and rescue company. We do hoist rescue because that was one of the coolest things about this helicopter search and rescue. It wasn't just land and go get people. We were we were all hoist operators. So you'd like actually hoist down, pick people up out of the trees or the side of a mountain or whatever and hoist them up. Um, that feeling of dangling on a cable that is like smaller than your pinky when you are uh, on the side of a mountain, like that, that is just, just the craziest trusting that shit. guy above you. Huh? Oh yeah. yeah. And you trust in the hoist operator is going to pick you up and you're trusting that the helicopter pilot's not going to, you know, crash you into the side of the mountain or something like that. It's a, it's a really dangerous job, really high speed. It was really fun. So we formed this company and we're like, well, how's this going to work? I work for this company. And they're like, oh, this is how the helicopter industry works. They're going to sue you. Okay. We are going to write enough in the contract for you to make really good money, cover your settlement because you're just going to settle with these guys, pay for your operations, and it's going to save us money. They gave us all the numbers. And it's crazy. It was $7.7 million a year is what this contract was worth. It was fucking unbelievable. Corporate needs to shave that by 25%. It's going to cost you $2 million to settle with your current employer. That's just ballpark, right? The, the rest is for you and your buddies. You know, and I was crunching the numbers and I was like, look, we're, we're going to get rich overnight. He's like, yeah, you guys will be millionaires overnight. Especially if it's just like you and your homies and you already know how to run all the systems. It's like the helicopter search and rescue industry is extremely lucrative. And that's with giving them a 25% break and settling out of court for my current employer. And uh, so I was like, all right, well, fuck, I guess that's how it's going to be. And so I I contacted my boss and I was like, hey, boss, just let you know, contract's coming up and um, I'm going to bid against you. And he's like, yo, you little cocksucker, fucking blah, blah, blah. And uh, he's like, hangs up. And he calls me back. He's like, all right, let's talk. I'll be there tomorrow. Flies up from Oregon in his private jet. Lands. Meet him at the airstrip. He's like, so, you're the cocky little son of a bitch that's going to steal my contract, huh? Never met you before, just through, like, conversation. Just conversation on the phone. Yeah, I made it all the way up through the company over the phone with this guy. And obviously, my numbers were good. No one ever got injured. No one ever died on my shift. You know, fucking, we never lost any drugs. We saved money on supplies. He's like, all right, put her there. I just shook his hand. He's like, let's go in and talk. He's like, I saw the writing on the wall. He's like, this contract was an easy one for me, and I never put any effort into it. I don't have any of my guys here. It's been you and your guys this whole time. And if I was Erickson, I'd be looking to get rid of me too. He's like, what are they talking you down to? And I, I was open with him, you know. I was like, yeah, here's the deal. And, you know, I was like, I'll offer you $2 million to settle out of court. He's like, all right, $2 million, and you've got to buy all of your rescue equipment from me. All right. And he's like, and you don't compete against me in Europe. Done. Sounds fucking good. 
And uh, he's like, all right, got a deal, partner. He's like, I think you're a fucking bastard, but you're a good businessman. Yeah. Have fun. Gets in his fucking jet, leaves. I was like, holy shit. The guys are like, yeah, this is fucking sweet. Totally. I think everything is just going to be amazing. Get a call about a week later, and it's from Erickson Aircrane. And they're like, hey, Emmett. Sorry, man, you didn't get the contract. And I was like, oh, what? What did I do wrong? You know, fuck me. He's like, you didn't do anything wrong. The Army has changed senior leadership, and the wars are drawing to an end. And so they are going to do Dragon Dust Off themselves again. They'll have the personnel about half to three-quarters of the time. They just have an Army-first policy. So... They'll do it while they're here, and then while they're not here, uh, maybe if the PJs are there at the Air Force, they can come save people. But there's gonna be a it's gonna be a, a lull in service. And I was like, well, fuck. And he's like, yeah, I'm just giving you the courtesy call. We're gonna let you know about a week before we tell your boss, so you guys can start looking for jobs and shit like that, you know. And so we uh, were like, well, fuck. And we were, we were also hoping to pick up a contract with the troopers because they had just got another helicopter teaching them how to do mm-hmm. search and rescue. And then the bottom fell out in the state too. Oil prices plummeted. Our production had been on decline for a long time. And it went from us having this potentially very lucrative military contract and a smaller state contract to there just being nothing. In a week. In a week. And so I went from being on the cusp of getting rich Doing something that I loved to being completely out of a job. What year? What's this? This was 2013. So this was, I guess, five years into my search and rescue career. I was devastated. Yeah. A driven man. It was one of the first real blows that I'd taken in a long time. Those are tough for people that are very successful. It was tough. And especially because it was completely out of my control. Uh, it was one thing I always liked about wrestling and track is that even though it's a team effort... It's all on the individual. You go out there and you stick a guy, that's you. You go out there and you get mopped up, well, fuck, that's on you too, man. You know? Your team can still lose, but you know you did your job. Exactly. This was honestly like doing my best in my position and it just not mattering. Just it was beyond my control. And I was like, well, what the fuck am I going to do, you know? So I had been... This thing never, never quits. Never quits. So, I'm like, fuck, man. So, guys and I, you know, we're, we're at the crew house when this happens, you know. We get, we get some beers. We're sitting there, we're drinking, like, man, what am I going to fucking do? And uh, I, I had done a little clean water activism by that time. Did some uh, writing for Trout Unlimited. I actually ended up, I, was, I won a, a national writing contest speaking out about clean water. Speaking specifically against Pebble Mine. Well, I could uh, become a writer. I could become more of a clean water activist. I'd been helping my buddy, Frank, gather signatures for the legalization campaign, you know. And I was like, huh. I think this thing has a chance. And I was like, that'd be really cool to get into, but man, I'm so far removed from the cannabis industry and... I'm not even a stoner anymore. I, I really I really don't want to go start back at the uh, 
the bottom. I was like, I could apply for Anchorage Fire Department. I could reapply for Honolulu Fire Department. I, throughout that story, I applied for Honolulu Department and actually got invited to test. Um, but ultimately, I turned it down for the search and rescue gig. But I was like, and at that level, any on your resume when you walk into any fire department, that's gonna look pretty good, right? Oh yeah, it look <laughs> it look it looked really good. The shitty thing though is is I was overqualified for a like a line firefighter's position. I was thirty. I had a pile of certs. I had worked my way all the way up into senior leadership. So a lot of times guys like me would get passed over for younger, less experienced guys because they're more trainable or hungrier. Mm-hmm. I was pissed. And so I was like, I think my only shot to get back in the industry, unless I want to go to some little podunk department that just needs people, take a massive pay cut, is I'm going to have to ride this out and travel the West Coast for years, maybe two, three years, until I can get a lieutenant or a captain's position at a really high-paying fire department. It's going to inject a lot of uncertainty into my life. Alice and I had just gotten married at the time. We just bought a small piece of property up here. Man, that's a lot of uncertainty. Let's jump into the cannabis industry with all this uncertainty. Yeah, and, <laughs> and so I was like, well... You know, I did it before, and I and I did pretty good on a small scale. And throughout my journey of being a paramedic, a firefighter, search and rescue instructor, and ultimately a you know a chief, I honed my public speaking skills a lot because you got to teach a lot, and you you got to grasp young testosterone-driven men's attention. So you can't just drone and you know, speak loudly and make eye contact with people. And uh, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to take my buddy up on his idea to start a cannabis business and we're going to help win this campaign. We're going to do it. Thank you for joining us on Far North Tokers. You can find more episodes of this time capsule of Alaskan cannabis on SoundCloud and iTunes. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Send questions and comments to midtoker at farnorthtokers.com. M-I-D-T-O-K-E-R at farnorthtokers.com. And now, Patreon. Help support the show financially at patreon.com slash midtoker. Here's Token. Here's Token.